Well, friends, if you have your Bibles, we're going to revisit that passage that I read uh, over in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 4, 14 through 16. We'll be there in just a little bit. But we are continuing this sermon series. It's called Organic Disciples. And we're looking at practices that characterize the Christian life. And if we will, through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit and by the grace given by God, if we will engage in these practices, God will use those to form us into the kind of people that he's called us to be. Back in the fall, your leadership team, that's your elected board and that's your pastoral staff, we gathered for a retreat. And like most retreats, we began by asking this question, why are we here? Why, why, why has God raised up this people known as Bentonville Community Church for this time and in this place? And that question always comes back to mission. And, and we defined our mission as a church to love God, to love others, and to make Christ-like disciples. That's simple, right? It's not simplistic, but it's simple. We love God, we love others, and we make Christ-like disciples uh, here in our community and, and around the world. That's why we're here. But the second question we addressed is, well, how do you do that? If that's our mission, if that's why we're here, how do we go about that? And we identified six core practices. And I want to remind you of what those are. The first is spiritual growth. It's this idea that God has work to do in us. The second is passionate worship. This moment that we have together on on Sundays, it's all about God. Number three, we are a people who are community focused. We love and serve others. Number four, we're a people of abundant generosity. Friends, that means we live with open hands. We receive resources with open hands. We steward them with open hands and we share them with open hands. Number five, life groups. We need each other. We really do. Number six, relational impact. We have a relational impact in our daily life. And and the daily life that we live, the, the places that we work, all of that proclaims good news to our friends and neighbors. And this, this book by my friends uh, Kevin and Sherry Harney, it really is taking these core practices and putting some meat to them to help us understand them. And so I encourage you to pick up the Organic Disciples book. It's in the lobby. Um, and, and today we're, we're really leaning into that core value of spiritual growth, that God has work to do in us. It doesn't matter if you've been following Jesus 40 years or 40 minutes, there are things that God wants to do to make you more like Jesus. And Kevin and Sherry in the book, they do a great job of unpacking this core practice of prayer. As you think about your spiritual growth, as you think about your journey to becoming like Jesus, there's, there's two things that I know God uses, and that's Bible engagement, which we looked at last week, and the practice of prayer. And so today we're going we're gonna to talk about prayer and I want to say this as a little bit of a caveat in the, in the brief time that we have together. And I promise you it will be brief. But in the brief time that we have together, I could not possibly unpack even what I know of this mystery of prayer. It is a, it is a divine mystery of our faith that, that, that we are able to go into God's presence, that we are able to commune with the creator of the universe, someone that we confess as Lord of all. Creator is all of all that is seen and unseen. We couldn't possibly plumb the depths of of what it means to to pray. 
But I want us to begin to have a conversation today. I want us to, to begin to, to at least explore how we can be uh, better people, how we can be a people of prayer, how our prayer life can improve today. Now, on this particular topic, we're, we're a little bit of a victim of our own efficiency. Um, we live in a, in a world that, that loves efficiency. Um, we, we love being able to do things smarter and faster. And, and how many of you would say, you know, in the last two years, Pastor, I've been on a Zoom call that should have been an email. I've been on several Zoom calls and I spent an hour with people who everybody was checking in. And honestly, all of that could have been an email. It could have had bullet points and I could have scanned it. We all could have been on the same page and we could have moved on down the road. Uh, but instead, I, I wasted an, an hour of my life. But at least you got to do the Zoom call, you know, in your pajama bottoms. You had to put a nice top on up top, but like at least you were able to be in your pajama bottoms for that and call it work. But at the end of the day, you spent an hour. It could have been a five-minute email. And so we have this craving for efficiency. And maybe there's something in you that says, okay, prayer, good. This is something that needs to change my life. Pastor, give me the PowerPoint slide with the five bullets. Tell me the things that I need to do to master this skill, to be efficient at it, and to maximize its benefit for my life. You got 20 minutes. Go. And that's a little bit how we're oriented in our age of efficiency. But I would say to you this about this mystery of prayer. The question is not how do I master this skill so I can maximize its benefits in my life. The question is this, am I faithfully engaging in this practice in light of what I know about God and in light of the season of life that I am in right now? Am I faithfully engaging in this practice? Because this practice is going to look different for all of us. We're at different seasons of life. And we all are at different places in our journey with Jesus. And so the time you spend in prayer may be different than the time someone else spends in prayer. The things you pray about may be different than what someone else prays about. And, and so... The, I want us to think about where we are at, what we know of God, where we're at in our relationship with God, and the season of life we're in right now. And here's what I believe is going to happen today. All of us are on that spectrum, and we're all at different places. But, the God, but God, through His Holy Spirit, is going to do something in all of our lives today to make us people of prayer, to improve our participation in this mystery of prayer. I believe it's going to happen today. And it, it's, it will most likely look different for all of us. But I pray, my hope is that we all would uh, uh, understand this mystery of prayer better. And so instead of how, instead of a tactical conversation today, well, let's start with a basic conversation. Well, why? <laughs> well, why pray? Why is this important? And I'm going to answer that with three additional questions, and it speaks to the motivation for prayer. Do we pray because we ought to? Is the answer to the why question because, well, we ought to. We're Christians. It's something that we ought to do. It's our duty. 
Jesus said to do it. The Bible says to do it. And so we're bound to do it. So do we pray because we ought to? Or do we pray because we need to? We, we are facing circumstances that are beyond our control. We have needs in our life. We have nowhere else to turn. And perhaps in desperation, we need to go to God. We have nowhere else to go. And then the flip side to that need to question is also this idea that I need oxygen. I need to breathe. There's, I need sustenance and food in my life. Do we understand prayer as essential, something that is, is foundational to our survival? It's something that we need. So do we pray because we need to? Third question, have we gotten to a point in our life where we pray because we want to? Where, where we come before God and we're in His presence and there's a longing inside of us that will not be settled until we talk to the Father. There's a thirst in us that will not be quenched until we experience communion with our Creator. There's a stirring in our soul that will only be settled when we come face to face with God. Do we want to? Do we want to be in His presence? Do we desire it? And I'll tell you the answer to all three of those questions. It's yes. The answer to all three is, is yes. Christian, you ought to pray. Christian, you need to pray. And Christian, my, I hope you want to pray. The answer to all three is, is yes. But now to that first question, this idea of duty, this idea of obligation, this idea of I ought to be doing something. It just rubs us the wrong way, doesn't it? We don't like to be told what to do. Everything's got to be fun. It's got to be enjoyable. I, what am I getting out of this? Where's the pleasure that I get out of this practice? Let's talk about that just for a moment. 21 years ago in June, I stood before family and friends. Most of them brought gifts to the ceremony. And I stood before family and friends, and I made a promise to my wife. I made a promise to her to, to love her and to keep her, to honor her, to cherish her in sickness and in health, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, till death do us part. I made a promise in that moment. And when I made that promise before friends and family, I obligated myself. I put myself in a covenant relationship. And in that covenant relationship were certain criteria, certain things that I were promising to do. And I want to say something about this, this journey of marriage. There are certain things that have defined me in my role as husband to Lauren. And of those things, there are, are many of those things that are obligations, their requirements. It's my duty as her husband to, to do these things, to be faithful to her, to honor her, to cherish her, to keep her. These are obligations that I have. And, and in there, I would say to you about that covenant that we make, and that's just an example of the, the relationships that we enter into some people may perceive that as a, a duty, 
something that is in some ways enslaving. You're in bondage to that commitment that you've made. But what I, but what I would say about that is that, that there's actually something incredibly liberating about binding yourself to that series of commitments about seeing how history and, and people have made that promise to one another. They stood before friends and family and they promised to love and cherish and keep one another. And they've said, this is a good way to live. This is a way for men and women to thrive and to fulfill the purposes for which God has created them. And in a world of so much ambiguity, in a world where so often we just say, hey, go out there and kind of make your own way and make your own rules and figure it out yourself. I'm actually liberated by these promises that I've made that have thousands of years of history behind them and 2,000 years of Christian history behind them. It's liberating to know this is clearly who God wants me to be in this moment. It's liberating. It's freeing. I have a clear plan and a clear pathway for who I'm called to be. Paul talks about this law that brings life, this law of Christ that's not duty-bound, but it's something that brings life. And so, yes, there are some things that we ought to do, and they're actually life-giving to us. But here's what's happened in 21 years of marriage. These things that I ought to do because I made a promise— in 21 years of marriage, they've become such a joy and they've been so life-giving that I want to do them. I want to be that kind of person. I want to be that husband. I want to be that father. And so on our journey of exploring prayer, yeah, maybe at the beginning we understand this is something that we ought to do, but eventually that is going to result in something that we want to do. We crave it. We desire this kind of relationship with the Father. And so that's why we pray. The disciples understood this. They understood the, the importance of this. And, and, and so they, they came to Jesus with a little bit of a tactical question. How? How, 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 do, how does this happen? Um, in Luke chapter 11, verse 1, we read this. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. How, how to pray. Teach us how to pray. Teach us to pray. Just as John taught his disciples. Now, um, if you read the Gospels closely, you'll see that the disciples, mm, most of the time they're sort of portrayed in this, well, it's a little bit of a negative light. They're sort of portrayed in this light of, man, you're so close to Jesus. You're spending three years of your life every day with Jesus. How can you not see X, Y, or Z? But this is one of the examples where the disciples absolutely get it right. They've been with Jesus long enough to see a certain practice in his life. Several times throughout the Gospels, you're going to see Jesus going up to a mountainside by himself while it was still dark to pray. It was a priority in his day. He got aside. He communed with the Father. And so they saw this practice. And by Luke chapter 11, the disciples figured out, whoa, this is the source of the power. This is the source of the strength. The things that Jesus does and the things that he says, it flows out of this practice in his life. And so they said, Lord, 
teach us to pray. They didn't say, Lord, teach us to heal. Lord, teach us to work miracles. Uh, Lord, you know that raised from the dead thing? Can you teach us that? That would be cool. Lord, teach us to break bread and feed 5,000 people. Lord, teach us to cast out demons. They said, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. And so what follows there is a passage of Scripture that we know as the Lord's Prayer. And we, many of us, if you follow Jesus for a while, you, you know this prayer. You can recite it. This is Luke chapter 11 where we have Lord's Prayer, and then it's also repeated uh, very similarly in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. And maybe you grew up in a tradition that recited the Lord's Prayer every Sunday in worship. I think that is a very rich practice. I think it is a practice that, that absolutely uh, is beneficial to our discipleship. Um, we don't practice that here at, at our church. We have different seasons where we might recite the Lord's Prayer. But, but I, I want to ask us about this, this prayer that Jesus gives us. Are we guilty sometimes of, of making it a mantra? of making it something that we just sort of recite by, by rote memory. Or maybe we think of the Lord's Prayer as some kind of incantation that unlocks certain spiritual benefits to us. And if we'll recite it, then, then God will do certain things for us. Does it become a mantra for us to unlock the favor of God? Sort of like Dr. Strange, when he wants to work up the certain incantation, he goes to his book of spells and figures out what he needs to send Spider-Man to whatever universe he's going to that day. I don't know. I've been watching too much Marvel. This is what quarantine has done to me. But more than a mantra, the, the Lord's Prayer is, is, is so much more than that. This became clear to me uh, back in 2008. I was a new pastor in Texas, and my friend Ken was a a physical therapist, and he was the team therapist for a, a powerhouse football team. It was the West Orange Stark Mustangs. And this football team had won multiple state titles. They were coached by just a legendary coach. He had been there almost 30 years. And, uh, you know, some of the most powerful people in small Texas towns uh, are the sheriff, the head football coach, and the pastor of First Baptist Church. Uh, and so here was one of the three most powerful people in the city of Orange, Texas. And, uh, and so uh, Ken said to me, hey, man, uh, have you been to a Texas football game yet? I was like, no, I haven't been. He's like, hey, you're going to go with me. We're going to be on the sidelines. I'm going to get you a sideline pass, and, uh, and we'll be down on the sidelines. You can watch the game there. I said, that sounds great. He said, yeah, we'll get to go in the locker room at halftime and everything. I said, sounds great. So it's Friday night, it's Texas, the lights are bright, and uh, they start the game, and let's just say the Mustangs were not playing up to their potential. They were, they were definitely playing down to their competition. They should have been up by four touchdowns at halftime, and they were actually tied seven to seven, I believe. And uh, Coach Dan was not real happy. I would describe his demeanor as, like, just imagine Nick Saban on his worst day, uh, times, times 10 or so. I mean, he was upset. 
And so we're going into the locker room, and I'm just wondering how this is going to go down. Because I'm, I'm just sensing this is not going to go well. And the boys, they went in there, and they got water, and then it was time for Coach Dan to do what coaches do at halftime, especially when their team, teams aren't playing well. And he stood in the middle of that locker room, and he, told those, he gave those boys what for. He told them everything they were doing wrong. He called those boys every name except the one their mamas gave them. Just profanity-laced tirade about all the things that need, they needed to do better. Apparently, there's one certain word that makes you tackle better. And if you use that word as an adjective in front of everything, all of a sudden you'll be able to tackle better and you'll be able to catch the football better, apparently. And so he gives this speech, tells them all the things that they're doing wrong. And at the end of this, I guess I would call it a speech, he says, all right, boys, bring it in. And almost as if these boys had done this a thousand times. It was almost choreographed. They didn't know exactly what was coming at the end of this. All right, boys, bring it in. Well, they all go to the middle of the locker room. They all put their hands in, and coach leads them out. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Just so you know, you can't profane the name of God in one breath and hallow the name of God in the same breath. And that's exactly what was attempting to be done uh, in that locker room. And I, I tell you that story not to throw shade on Coach Dan. I'm sure he's a wonderful person. And he's been very successful as a football coach. That's not the point. But, but the point is to say sometimes we use the Lord's Prayer as a mantra. We will attach it to whatever we are doing so that we can unlock some spiritual benefit. But more than a mantra... Jesus teaches us to pray. He gives us the Lord's Prayer, friend, as a model. As a model for what our prayer life can look like and the things that should fill our conversation with the Lord. And I tell you, it's a conversation, and we know that because of the first word of the prayer, where Jesus begins it by saying, Our Father. No one else called the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob Father. It was the first time it had ever happened. But Jesus does. And not only does he call God his father, but he does so in Aramaic. Aramaic was the language of the people. This was the language that Jesus prayed in. And in Aramaic, the word father, the word Jesus uses here, it actually has a, a very colloquial, a very informal uh, sense. It literally means daddy. He literally would say, okay, if you want to learn how to pray, if you want to be tapped into this source of power and strength, if you want to be connected to the Creator, then guess what? You can call the Creator of all that is seen and unseen, Daddy. Daddy, hallowed be your name. I remember when my boys were little, we would go to these playgrounds that dot the landscape of our community here, and they're wonderful, and I love the access we have to them. And, and I remember being there with my boys, and they're three, and they're six, and I'm trying to keep a watchful eye on them, and I, all of a sudden I hear, Daddy! And 20 dads all turn around to that voice. It wasn't my kid, fortunately, but it was hard to distinguish one three-year-old voice over another. 
But we all responded immediately when we heard, Daddy, this is how it is with our God. And it's so different than first century paganism that Jesus was, was living in. It, at that time, the way the pagans understood gods were, you know, there was Baal and he was God of fertility, which meant rain because rain made the crops happen and the crops gave farmers something to sell and they gave them money and it sustained the people. And so Baal was a really important God. And, and the basic belief was that, you know, Baal really wasn't interested in humanity. And if you wanted to get Baal's attention, you had to say a lot of words. You had to say a lot of mantras. You had to do a lot of stuff. And you had to get together with a bunch of people and say Baal's name over and over and over and over again and carry on and do all kinds of things. And the idea was finally Baal would be like, okay, you people, I hear you. I'll stop what I'm doing over here and I'll send you some rain. Would you just be quiet? But it's completely different with what Jesus is inviting us to do. He is saying we can call God our Father. In fact, let's revisit Hebrews 4. This is not Baal that's bothered by our request. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. We have a great high priest, a way maker, who has ascended into heaven. Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold firmly to this faith we profess. We don't have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses. We don't serve a God who's disinterested in what is going on in our life. We don't have to holler and carry on with a lot of words to get his attention. No, we have one who's been tempted in every way. We have one who knows exactly what we're going through. Yet he was without sin. Yet he remained faithful to his father. And therefore, because of what Jesus has done for us, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence, boldly. Let us come before the throne of grace and find mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This is the good news of Jesus. The fact that we, when we pray, we can come boldly into his presence. And so if you're wanting to develop a, a better prayer life today, the first thing I would say to you is that you can come boldly anytime, anywhere, any place. You might say, oh, pastor, I haven't talked to God in forever. I haven't talked to God in forever. I'm so ashamed to even call upon his name. I've neglected this in my life. Friend, did you hear what I told you? Jesus has enabled you to go into the presence of the Father anytime, anywhere, any place, boldly and find grace and help for your time of need. So this is good, this is good news for us. I love that, that so Jesus begins to give us this model prayer known as the Lord's Prayer. And I want to go a little deeper than the Lord's Prayer today and just make this point. Luke chapter 2, verse 52 says, And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature in favor with God and men. Jesus was 12 years old when Luke was describing that. Luke was saying that, that Jesus was, was growing in this tradition of the Israelites. And what was forming and shaping his idea of prayer? It was the prayer book and the hymn book of Israel, a book in our Bibles known as the Psalms. What we have in the book of Psalms is the same document that formed and shaped the prayer life of Jesus. 
just let that sink in for a moment. That what the, the resource that Jesus had to shape his prayer life with the Father is the same resource that is in our Bibles. And that is why last week we talked about Bible engagement. That's why we stress the importance of getting into this word. And you see traces of all the prayers of the people in the book of Psalms. You see traces of that in the Lord's Prayer. So let's go to the prayer book of Jesus. And let's think about the kinds of prayers that should characterize our prayer life as well. In the book of Psalms, you see prayers of thanksgiving. These are opportunities, opportunities for us to tell God all that we are thankful for, to think about what he has done for us. Psalm 34, verse 10, The lion may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Think about all that God has done for us. Be thankful for that. Second thing that we see in the book of Psalms are prayers of confession. These are prayers where we ask for forgiveness and we surrender to God's Spirit to live a better life. One of the things we're committed to as a church is this call to holiness, this call to Christ-likeness. And, and there was a moment there was a, where we thought that meant we never made a mistake. But as I have journeyed with Jesus, what I understand more about, about holiness people, the people who are most like Christ, that have informed and shaped my life, are people who have been willing to admit when they're wrong. People who have been willing to say, I'm sorry. People who have been willing to confess freely their need and their sin. They've had the most influence on my life. And I think that is a hallmark of the holy life, a willingness to pray prayers of confession. What did David pray when he was caught in the sin of adultery? Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, blot out my sin. Third, in the book of Psalms, we see prayers of praise. We tell God what we love about his character. Psalm 96.3, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among the people. We bring prayers of praise. Number four, what about times when we're sad? Is there space for that in our prayer life? When the book of Psalms, two-thirds, two-thirds of the Psalms are laments. They're the people of God crying out from their hurt and from their brokenness and from their confusion. And in that, they're also declaring their trust in God. What did Jesus cry out on the cross? Psalm 22, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? It's a psalm of lament, a prayer of lament. Number five, when we pray, we can ask God for wisdom. We can ask God for insight and direction as we follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Psalm 37, it's one of my favorite psalms. It says this, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will do it. Do you need wisdom today? Do you need direction? Are you asking God to open a door for you? Pray for wisdom. He'll give it. Finally, you can't miss this theme in the Psalms. The psalmist cried out for justice. It's when we express to God our anger. There's really no other way to describe it. It's our anger for how others or how we ourselves 
have been treated unfairly. Psalm 140, verses 12 through 13 says this, I know that the Lord secures justice for the poor, upholds the cause of the needy. Surely the righteous will praise your name and the upright will live in your presence. So prayers of confession, prayers of praise, prayers of lament, prayers of wisdom, prayers for justice, prayers of thanksgiving. These are the things that shaped the prayer life of Jesus and they shape our life as well. We have the example of Jesus. But do you have the example of someone in your life that has a vibrant prayer life? I have found these people to be invaluable for me as I think about becoming a person of prayer. And and as we close today, I want to tell you about one of them. I first met Mr. Wayne, it's been 10 years ago now, almost 11 years ago. I met him at a birthday party. It was a pretty unique party. His family was throwing him this party and it celebrated the birthday of three individuals who were turning 30, 60, and 90. Mr. Wayne was turning 90. His son, Marion, was turning 60. And Marion's son, Brad, was turning 30. A 30, 60, 90 party. Not very often our family is going to be able to celebrate three generations like that, especially when they line up incrementally in, in you know, perfect units like that of, of the same number. So a pretty cool party. So I was asked to go, and I think I said the blessing there. But that's when I met Mr. Wayne, who that year was going to turn 90. I began to learn a little bit about his story. As a young man, he volunteered to serve his country, and he went off to the European theater to fight the Axis powers. Uh, uh, and uh, he was involved in the Battle of the Bulge. Saw a lot of uh, amazing things during his time there. Served his country honorably, admirably, courageously. And there was a mission. Someone needed to go out and run power lines to establish communication between the armies. So Mr. Wayne could have appointed a private or a corporal to go out and do that, but he said, you know what, I'm going to do it myself. So he went out to run communication line, and in the process of running communication line, uh, he fell and severely injured his back. He spent a lot of time in a body cast, uh, months recovering from this injury, and really never was able to be mobile the way he had been before. Lived the balance of his life with chronic pain uh, from an injury suffered defending our country and establishing freedom for people uh, all over the world. And so this moment in some ways defined him, but, but in other ways, even before he went off to war, he was a follower of Jesus that loved to pray. And it was very important for him to intercede and and to pray for people and to to lift their name up in prayer. It was something that he felt God had had called him to do. But after his injury, when your mobility is taken away and your ability to stand for long periods of time are taken away and and certain things are, are taken away from you, 
this ministry of prayer became even more important. And over the course of his life, he just began to develop a regular rhythm of praying for people and lifting his family and lifting his friends up to the Father. So when I met Mr. Wayne, most of his life was was in a wheelchair. But I saw a tremendous person of character, someone who knew how to get a hold of God, someone who knew how to intercede on, on behalf of others. And as I think about the ministry that he had later in his life, praying for people, it reminds me of this song. It's called Little is Much When God is in It. And the third stanza of that, of that hymn says this, Are you laid aside from service, body worn from toil and care? Listen to this, soldier. You can still be in the battle in the sacred place of prayer. You can still be in the battle. Oh, there was a season when he was removed from the battle and he was in a body cast and he was recovering. He was trying to regain use of his legs. But not one time was he ever out of the battle to advance the kingdom of God and to bring life to others and healing to others and to see God's kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. He was always in that battle because he was in the sacred place of prayer. And God did things that we'll only know in eternity through the faithful prayers of my friend, Mr. Wayne. So at his funeral, his family shared with me his prayer list. And I want, I want to show it to you. I had Marion take a picture of it and send it to me this week. Man, Mr. Wayne took an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper and he began to just write down names. As the Lord would bring people's name to his, to his mind, he'd write them down on that piece of paper. Let me tell you something. If you had the privilege and the honor of getting on Mr. Wayne's prayer, li- prayer list, you were going to get prayed for. Your name was going to get boldly lifted to the Father. Mr. Wayne was going to pray 